Well, I would like to invite you to turn this morning to the book of Leviticus. And we will begin our time in God's Word this morning in Leviticus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And you can find that on page 90 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And I want to let you know we're going to try to work through chapter 12, 13, 14, and chapter 15 today. And so, um, indeed, you, you will need your Bible open today, and I trust um, it will be helpful as, uh, to help you engage in God's Word this morning uh, as we consider it. And so please uh, turn into your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 12. And you will need to be reminded, I think, this morning that what we're considering is the Word of God uh, because the passages in front of us are uh, very obscure to us. And if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, you, you already now know that we are studying this summer through the book of Leviticus. And uh, the passages in which we'll consider, especially if you're not a Christian today, you might think these are very, very strange passages. And we as Christians would agree with you that we would find these strange passages as well. And yet we also think they're very helpful for us as we understand them through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're here now in Leviticus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day... The flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed... Whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb... Then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word this morning. We do believe it is an honor to consider it even if it is remote to us, challenging to understand. In fact, because it is particularly challenging this morning, we ask with eagerness in our heart for the Holy Spirit to come and to help us to know these truths which we consider and how they apply to us some 4,000 years later. And so we, we need you. We need your help. Our desire this morning, Father, is to know you better Our desire is to have Christ exalted in our hearts through your word. That our love might flow more eagerly to him. 
and that our lives might be conformed more perfectly to His example. That we might be a holy people as You, our God, is holy, are holy. And so help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I came across a story about a training course on driving a semi-truck. At the end of the class, there was a final exam, and the final exam had just one question. You're driving down a steep road that winds around a mountain and has numerous hairpin curves. Just beyond the edge of the road, the shoulder is a cliff that drops hundreds of feet, and the road has no guardrail. As you are descending that steep road, you lose your brakes. What do you do? One truck driver who was taking the class answered the question this way. I would wake up Bobby. The teacher was somewhat confused by that answer and asked him later to elaborate, in which he said, Bobby and I drive together. When Bobby drives, I sleep, and when I drive, Bobby sleeps. In that situation, I would wake up Bobby because Bobby and I have been driving together a long time, and I know Bobby would want to be awake because he ain't never seen a wreck as bad as this one's going to be. I stand before you with the intent of preaching Leviticus 12 through 15, which deals with childbirth, menstruation, the emission of semen, and I in many ways feel like I'm driving down a mountain road headed for a cliff, and the brakes have gone out, right? And I kind of want Bobby to preach this sermon, to be honest, One commentator says these are the most feared chapters in the Bible. And yet they are in the Bible, are they not? And therefore they are God's word. And God's word is always profitable for us. In our study of Leviticus, we are now uh, really in the second week of considering the purity laws in which God gives his people. Last time, if you remember chapter 11, we considered the dietary restrictions And what we saw in many ways is that ritual impurity upon the people of God is can be external to them. They could bring it into their body through contact or consuming unclean food. In in chapters 12 through 15, we're still dealing with the issue of ritual purity, but the sources of ritual purity in these chapters do not come from outside of us, but from within our own body. And in some sense, God is teaching his people that uncleanness is not simply a matter of the environment in which they inhabit, but it also is within us. In fact, I think it might be helpful just to review these ritual states. And so you have on your uh, note sheet a diagram on the back. You saw this a couple weeks ago. And I just want to review it so we have it in our mind what God is talking about when we talk about unclean and clean and defiled and so forth. You'll see two large circles there on your sheet. One says holy, the other says common. And what we learn from the book of Leviticus and elsewhere is that everything and everyone in God's estimation is either one or the other. Everything is either holy or common. Now the common things can be broken up into two categories. Of everything that is common, it is either clean or unclean. And therefore everything and everyone is either holy or clean or unclean. Moreover, you see, you can move between these states. You could be, something holy can be 
be profaned and then become common. Something common can be polluted and therefore become unclean. You can move the opposite direction. Many things that are unclean can become clean. We'll see that throughout our passage today. And even clean things can be sanctified and therefore become holy. I want you to understand this. is going to be very helpful for you to understand everything I say today. Is that all Israelites would go back and forth throughout their life from clean and unclean. Back and forth. It's inevitable. And, And therefore, it is not necessarily bad to be unclean. So do not think unclean means, means bad. It's, that's not true. In fact, um, uh, best understood to be unclean is to be, is to be dirty. It is to um, be unfit to be in God's presence. And there's some places, like, some places you can't go if you're dirty. Some places you can't go if you're sick. As we talked about last time, you can't go into a hospital and hold a baby if you're sick. It doesn't mean it's, you're a bad person because you're sick. You're just not fit to be there. And so what God is teaching is when you are unclean, you are not fit to draw near to God, to be close to Him. This all has to do with our, the appropriateness of being near God, our access to God, and the unclean do not have access to God because God is pure. And as we consider the purity of God this morning I, I, and these passages, there will be objections perhaps in your mind. Some of these laws will seem absurd to you. We're going to deal with mildew in your home this morning. Some will seem offensive to you. It might seem to you that women are particularly targeted and have a much more difficult time with things. Some will be uncomfortable. These passages deal with scabs and bleeding and menstruation and sexual intimacy. Some will seem very cruel to you if you would get sick. In a particular way, the response of the people of God would be to kick you out of their camp, perhaps, for the rest of your life. And the question that comes when we consider these passages, so what do we do with these laws this side of the cross, thousands of years later living here in America? Are they worthless? Do we obey them? How do we apply these truths to us? And I want to suggest this just as we begin this morning, that these laws are, in light of Christ, they are amazingly helpful. Though they might not apply in particular areas of our life, they show us, at, at the very least, that all of life is related to God. That he's concerned with every aspect of our life. But I think even more important is that they give us a, a context to understand what Christ has come to do. Right? Because of the filth in our, in our lives, God will not dwell in the midst of that impurity. That if we were to come to him in our moral filth, we would defile God who is pure. And therefore God has come in Christ to make us clean. Why? So that we might be with him. And so I'm hoping that these passages give us a lens to see the gospel. I'm hoping that it, it makes the, the work of Christ more robust. That we understand that the, the atonement in which God provides is not simply um, taking away our sins, though he does that. Atonement is also understood, and Leviticus is helping us here, is the removal of the filth in our life that we might dwell in purity with God. In fact, I think... It, what would be helpful for you, and, and we were studying this passage last night with, with our family as we do on s- Saturday nights, and we talked about, do you understand sin in the context of defilement and impurity? That it's not just bad, it's just not breaking a law, it's filthy. And God understands sin to be that way, and it might make us hate it more if we consider sin in the way in which God considers it. 
And so uh, what we're going to do this morning, we're going to really two points. We're going to just look at all the various kinds of defilements. And so we're going to um, look at uh, the impurities here. We're going to work our way through, through what they are, what they did in response to them, and try to draw any points of application. And then we're going to see that God provides the cleansing. And we be, uh, chapters 12 and 15 really deal with bodily discharge issues. And so we'll start there. And the middle chapters, 13 through 14, deal with diseases on the body or in the house or the garments. Uh, with this passage of Scripture, as you can see, it's many pages. We will not, this is not a Bible study this morning. Just to let you know, we're going to hit the big ideas. And uh, the, if you read and study, you might uh, get more in-depth and I think would profit from that as well. So, beginning with the impurities in which God uh, lays out for us, we see the impurity of childbirth found in verse, uh, chapters 12. Look in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. So if a mom has a, a child, that mother is now unclean. Her uncleanliness, according to the word here, is contagious for seven days. That is, anything she touches also will be unclean. Anyone she touches will also be unclean. We're told in verse 3 what to do if it is a male child. As we see on the eighth day of the flesh, his foreskin shall be circumcised. So after seven days, the mother is no longer contagious in her uncleanness, and she can bring her son for circumcision. Now, other nations around Israel would circumcise their males. Egypt, for example, practiced circumcision. But what's interesting about the other nations is that their circumcision was a sign of puberty or a a, a rite of puberty. It was a sign that you are becoming a male. I was backpacking through an island in the Pacific Ocean some years ago on the island of Tana. There I'm preaching the gospel to villages and up in the mountains of this island. And occasionally we would come by a hut. And there were little slats in this grass hut. And all these boys would be peering out of the hut. And I I said, well, what's going on? I asked my translators, what's going on? Why are these boys in this hut? And all these boys have been circumcised from ages 10 through 14 in the jungles of Tana. And there they will be sequestered within this hut for about seven days. They could not, it must have been 40 people and 40 boys in these little hot huts in this hut. And there they would have to stay. And this was, this was their right in that culture that you are now a man. Okay, but that was not what God was saying here. God will give puberty not, uh, excuse me, circumcision for, to declare not that you become a man, but that you belong to Him. Right? It was a sign to the Jewish people that, that you are gods. It was a physical sign that demonstrated an inward reality. In fact, we get to Leviticus 26, and the Bible will describe the disobedience as having an uncircumcised heart. Right? So you could, what God is saying, you could cut off the, your flesh of your skin, but you could still have the flesh in your life. And so he's calling for his people, no, you need to repent of your sin and devote yourself completely to God. The New Covenant, by the way, has a parallel to circumcision. It's called baptism. You could consider, if you want to consider the parallel between circumcision and baptism, I would recommend to you Colossians chapter 2. That baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. That, that baptism is the sign, as we saw last week, that you belong to God and are part of God's people. So this child would then be circumcised. You know what happens in verse 4. There's a second phase of her uncleanness. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. 
she not, shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until, she, until the days of her purifying are complete. And so you see there's 33 more days of her uncleanness for a total of 40 days. This second phase, she is not contagious, but she cannot come and approach God in the tabernacle area. We find out what she needs to do after those 40 days are complete in verses 6 and 7. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And so you note that she will bring, in order to restore her cleanliness, bring two offerings, a purification offering, which will cleanse the sanctuary from her, the defilement which she has brought, and the burnt offering, which would cleanse her, if you will, from any sin that she might have committed, as well as express gratitude for the birth of the child. Now, the question this all raises is why, why does childbirth make someone unclean? Right? God commanded... When he first created, first command is be fruitful and multiply. And it has been said, by the way, that's the only command that God has ever given that humanity has faithfully obeyed. Have kids. We know that in Israel, they, they saw children as a gift. They wanted large families. Childlessness was to them, as it is to many today, great misfortune. And so it's surprising. We get to Leviticus 12, and the Bible says, by the way, when you have a child, you become unclean. You are not fit at that time to approach God. It raises the question, what's wrong with childbirth? The answer is nothing is wrong with childbirth. As I've already tried to establish it, is not wrong to become unclean in this way. There are many impurities in which you are supposed to do. You're supposed to be sexually intimate with your spouse. The Bible teaches that will make you unclean. You prepare a body for burial. That will make you unclean. These are good things. In fact, the woman is impure, by the way, not because she has a child. It's not the child that brings the impurity. It's the loss of blood. As you see that mentioned Three times in this chapter, look in uh, verse 7, for instance, the second half of verse 7. This is the, let's see, then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. We know that the Bible, and, and Leviticus in particular, teaches that blood is a sign of life. The loss of blood is the symbol of death. And God is saying, you're not going to bring that into my presence. I think it's very similar to why a leper cannot approach God. His body is increasingly resembling a corpse as his skin dies. And God says, that is not fit to be near me. The second question that this raises is, why does it take twice as long to become purified if you have a girl as opposed to if you have a boy? You see this in verse 5. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying 66 days. And so why is she unclean twice as long? Some people suggest it's a chauvinistic society. Um, I, would, I would counter that there's no difference in the offering that she presents, whether it be a male or, cho- uh, male or female. Uh, many have suggested this is just a cultural idea. There are some ancient accounts, by the way, that, um, that they thought that women would lose more blood with the birth of a girl than with a boy. Um, some have suggested that women are more prone to sin, and therefore it's more defiling to give birth to a woman. That sounds about right to me. Um, 
Um, others have suggested that the male child is circumcised, so in some sense he's taking some of the impurity upon himself. He's bearing that cost, unlike the girl. Others suggest that two females are their mother and daughter, and so it requires twice as long in anticipation that the daughter one day will become impure through her own childbirth. But the answer is we don't know. It doesn't tell us. So I'm afraid I can't be very helpful with that. But those are some, um, some of those um, ideas you might consider if you're wondering about that. What we do know is that this passage, I believe, clearly teaches that children are celebrated. I, I don't think we should think of these rights that she has to bring as something negative. I don't think these are a burden. I think these are a way to celebrate a God-ordained way that God says, Listen, you have a child. You need to come to me in worship. I think that's beautiful. The idea that childbirth will bring a mother into the very presence of God in order to give thanks for that gift. And I think that's glorious. I think it celebrates children. I think it nurtures mothers, by the way. I think there is great practical benefit to her uncleanness. This is a socially acceptable way for her to withdraw and rest for 40 days after the birth of a child. In fact, she would be forbidden by God's law to perform any domestic duties for seven days. Her uncleanness is contagious. Right? Amen. Yeah. Right? If she were to cook dinner six days after she gave birth, she would defile dinner. She is made to rest. God says you will rest and do nothing but care for that child. Moreover, I think it teaches us that God, once again, welcomes the poor. As you note, verse 8, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be unclean. We see again and again in the book of Leviticus that God makes provision for the poor and that your financial status shall never exclude you from the right and the privilege to worship God. And we, in fact, we, we see this Verse 8, 12, chapter 12, verse 8, later in the Bible. You know where? Right? The Bible tells us at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. And when the time for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Secondly, we consider the impurity from bodily fluid found in Leviticus chapter 15. This chapter is divided. First half, verse 18 verses deal with male issues. The second half, verses 19 to 30, deal with female issues. Both male and female are divided, subdivided again, with uncommon discharges and common discharges. For instance, consider the uncommon discharges of a man, beginning in chapter 15, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge, whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge. It is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one uh, with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. It's interesting to me how contagious this is. Everything that he sits on becomes unclean, and then which that can transmit uncleanness to someone else who might touch it or sit upon it. Um, once this, this issue passes, just like a mother who gave birth, the man is required to bring a purification offering in order to cleanse the sanctuary from his defilement and a burnt offering in order to atone for his sin. 
In verses 16 through 18, we see a male's common discharge, the emission of semen. Note verse 16, if a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and shall be unclean until evening. If a man lies with a woman and has a mission of semen, both of them shall bathe in water and be unclean until evening. You notice this is a minor impurity. No offering is required in order to reestablish his cleanliness. He simply must bathe and wait until evening. This is not teaching us, by the way, that sexual intimacy is dirty. If you think that Bible teaches that, I would encourage you to read the book called Song of Solomon. Read Proverbs chapter 5. Um, celebrates the sexual intimacy that spouses are, are given, uh, can give themselves to. Um, but once again, we see that positive things like childbirth can make one richly impure. Some have uh, noticed, by the way, that when God, just as a footnote, when God sent people to war, when he sent his people to war, they were demanded by God that they were to remain ritually clean in the midst of war, which meant that they would have to refrain from any sexual activity while uh, engaging in war, which, which um, mandated, therefore, that when God's people went to war, the women, the women who were conquered were protected from those soldiers. Um, he moves on and discusses the female discharges, begins with the issue of menstruation. Look in verse 19. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge of her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Again, this is a minor impurity. No sacrifice is needed in order to um, become clean. I, I do think this, once again, is God's kindness to women. This would be a day in which hygiene products were not available. I think women, perhaps, therefore, would be grateful for a socially acceptable way to withdraw from society. I also suggest to you that, um, that a, a woman uh, back in this day would not uh, hold on for a second, because this might be a shocking statement to you, would not menstruate monthly. And it's not because their bodies are changed. In fact, m- monthly menstruation is a relatively modern phenomenon. And the reason is, is because women at that time would be married shortly after puberty. There would be no birth control. Large families would be desired. And children would be le- weaned at a very late age, sometimes up to two and three years old, keeping menstruation away for period of time. It's also interesting, in light of this passage, um, the story in Genesis 31, remember when Rachel uh, is fleeing with Jacob, her husband, and she steals the idols from her father, Laban, and, and Laban runs them down, and he says, where are my idols? And he searched through all their bags, and, and he searched everything except the saddlebags upon which Rachel is sitting, and Rachel happens to have hidden the idols in her saddlebags, and he says, get up, I want to search those saddlebags, and she says, I can't get up, the way of woman is upon me. Right? And what God is teaching us is that the idols in which he's stolen are impure, aren't they? As she sits upon them. And God is showing that these idols are unclean. We, uh, later on in Leviticus 15, we see um, from verses 25 through 30, uh, abnormal discharges from women. And the impact and the offerings are very similar to abnormal male discharges. So what's the point with all this? Well, I would suggest to you, at the very least, what God is doing is he is protecting the fidelity of his worship. I I mean that because the surrounding nations would worship their false gods often through the use of human blood. 
Um, they, they would bring blood into that worship. They would uh, sometimes even mutilate themselves and cut themselves in order to worship God. We also know that surrounding nations, the book of Leviticus will deal with this in the later chapters, would offer their children as human sacrifices as a way to worship God. And what God is saying is that anything that deals with human blood, anything that deals with childbirth, anything that deals with death, you do not bring near me to worship. You are to worship me differently than the pagan nations around you. Moreover, the nations around them also worshipped through sexual activity. As you know, both in this day and even in the days of Jesus, there was cult prostitution in these fertility religions that you would actually worship this God by sleeping with a prostitute. And what God is teaching us is that sexual intimacy is to be nowhere near his worship. That you are to worship me distinctly from the other nations. You are not to adopt the pagan practices of those around you. The worship must be different. Likewise, today, even thousands of years later, Christians, our worship should be different. And the world's worship of its idols, should it not? At the very least, our Sunday mornings should be different as we gather together in order to give our praise to God and to hear from Him. We see a third type of impurity, the impurity of skin disease. That's found in chapters 13 and 14. Um, There are uh, three types of skin diseases. There's the human skin disease. There is a a disease on a garment. And there's diseases in the house. Uh, Chapters 14, verses 33 through 57 deal with uh, diseases on the surface of a house. um, Some type of mold or fungal growth. We know, of course, now that these things can make you sick. If it was a minor issue, you would just replaster the walls. A major issue, you would tear down the house and take the rubble out of the camp. In chapter 13, verses 47 through 59, we see what happens if you have a disease in a garment, some type of uh, fungal growth in a garment. If it was a minor disease, you, uh, you could wash it. If it was a major disease, you had to burn that garment. That wouldn't be significant to you, burning clothes. We throw clothes away all the time, give them away. Every clothing they had was handmade to them. It was, a, a, um, it was great value to them. And so what God is asking is for a very costly action in order to obey him, burn down a ha- uh, tear down a house, burn up clothing, right? These costly actions that the people of God would do would teach them and God that they love him and respect him above all, and they're willing to obey him even if it costs them something. I wonder if that's true for us. Do we obey God when it is costly? He says, uh, the third type of disease is a, uh, the skin disease on a human body. This is chapters, chapter 13, verses 1 through 46. There are seven different types of skin disease. I just want to point out one, chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest, and the priest shall examine the diseased area of the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin... And the hair in it has not turned white. The priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. 
And then a priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And if the diseased area has faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption. And what we see here is that the priest would come. If you have a rash or something, you would call the priest. He would examine that part of your body. He would declare you either clean, unclean, or unsure. If you're unsure, you'd be quarantined seven days. You would come back, see if the disease has spread or if it's deep. If he's still unsure, he'd quarantine you another seven days. And if it was patchy, if it was deep, if it had spread, he would declare you to be unclean. Right? If it had not spread, if it was not deep, he would declare you to be clean. I think verse 40 in chapter 13 is also important. If a man's hair falls out of his head, he is bald, he is clean. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is Craig Sweeney's life verse right here. (laughs) I think the priest had an odd job, don't you? Of course, he had to handle the sacrifices and teach the law of God. Also had to butcher animals occasionally, perform minor surgery on infants, served as a home and health inspector. And if he came to your home and declared you unclean as a result of an acute skin disease, you see the response that you would be forced to take in chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let his hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. If a priest declared you unclean, you took three actions. There is a public announcement that you would declare wherever you went, unclean, unclean, so that the people could stay away from you in order that you might not defile others. There is a public mourning. You would tear your clothes. You would let your hair hang loose. You would cover your lip with your hand. All signs that you are mourning a death. That's appropriate because of the third action that there is a permanent banishment. You will be exiled outside the camp into the wilderness. And you might think, well, that doesn't sound too bad. Right? I would like to live in the wilderness. Right? To them, it was a disaster. Family was everything. Tribe was everything. Community was everything. Now, your family could go out and join you, but they would become ritually unclean and therefore unfit ever to approach God. You could be out there in the wilderness. You still trust the Lord. You still love the Lord, but you could not draw near Him. And I don't know, if could you imagine if this happened to you? That you are faithful to God, that you loved God, that you teach your kids the Word of God, that you encourage your neighbors to follow God, and one day you get a rash? One day you have a spot, and it spreads, and you don't know why it's happening to you? And at no fault to you, you are banished from the people of God. You now, wherever you go, have to shout, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. You cover your lip and people run from you. Can you imagine if this happened to your child? Your wife? What would you do, I wonder? A little spot on your arm? You call the priest to come look at it? You just wear long sleeves. Hope it goes away. It must be unbelievably difficult. It raises the question, what do we do when the Word of God demands action that brings hardship? 
What do we do when the word of God demands us to do things that bring sadness and weeping into our own life? Is God still our Lord when he tells us to do something incredibly difficult? Because somehow we live in a day in which the American church says, God just wants my life to be easy. He wants me to be happy and comfortable and everything to be convenient. And such ideas are nonsense and antithetical to Scripture. All we have to do is open it up and God is constantly telling us to do hard things. This is not simply an old covenant reality. It is a new covenant reality. How many times did our Lord say, if you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself. You need to walk away from mom and dad and brother and sister and children and jobs and even you need to sacrifice in order to follow me. Please understand, my brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes obedience to God is hard. And that is no excuse for not doing it. As God teaches us, all of life is devoted to Him. I mean, how comprehensive is God? I mean, He has touched a lot of intimate areas, is He not? He was telling us that everything is important to Him. That this idea that this is my sacred life, this is my secular life, is nonsense to the Lord. This is all belongs to me. And God wants us to live a holy life. And holy does not simply mean moral. It means totally devoted to God, seeking to honor Him in all of life. We also know what God is doing here is He is helping maintain the health of His people. Uh, they're, they're, this is very practical. There are no antibiotics this day. These people live in close proximity. Uh, a disease spreading at this time would be an epidemic. right? And so it's gracious to God to quarantine one or some in order to save many. We do the same type of things in our society. This, of course, raises the issue of sickness. Um, we think about the sick people and how they were treated back in this time. Um, the church, of course, is exhorted by God to care for the sick. That's how the, why the church grew. You know why the church grew? It was not because they were powerful or wealthy or mighty. It wasn't even their doctrine. It was the, it was the lives their doctrine created as they cared for the sick when everybody else ran from them. We should care for the sick, I think Scripture teaches us. Maybe some of you even come today and you can maybe even relate to some, this idea of, of this sickness I would encourage you to pray for healing. I think that's good and appropriate. If you want to consider how the people of God prayed for healing when they are sick, I would encourage you to consider Psalm 6, Psalm 13, Psalm 38, Psalm 41. That might help you know how to pray for sickness. And I'll also encourage the sick here to put their hope in heaven. I want to tell you this morning, as we consider these passages, that there's coming a future when there is no more sickness. And all the uncleanness will pass away and death itself will die. Right? And I think those of you who are sick, when you one day walk into a world in which God has removed that sickness, you know what He is going to do? He is going to redeem that sickness and all the pain and suffering which you experience in this life and no longer experience in that life forever will be, be fuel to your praise and worship of God. That he will work through that in order to create even a greater affection for him and the work in which he has done. Place your hope in heaven. We also see that these issues are God is uh, seeking to maintain his purity. I think these skin diseases, though it's not wrong to have a skin disease, as I've tried to establish these ritual impurities, that all the ritual status point us to a, a worse condition. And it's a moral defilement. 
So these are all, though they're not wrong, they all point us to, to the issue of sin. And Leviticus is going to deal with moral defilement later on in the chapters. And we, we think about Leviticus and we've learned that God symbolically resides in the center of, of the camp of Israel. And he's surrounded by the, the clean nation of Israel, right? And, and, and outside the camp is the wilderness, out on the edges. And that's where the Gentiles live and the sinners live and the unclean live. And so to move from the center, the tabernacle, to the camp, to the wilderness, is to move from life and beauty and truth and purity out to death and decay and defilement and chaos. To be removed from the presence of God is a reenactment of the fall. It's an expulsion from God's presence because God will be undefiled. He will not dwell with the impurity of this fallen world. The the tabernacle is in many ways the throne room of God. And you can't bring death and decay into His presence, nor can you bring moral defilement into His presence. And look in chapter 15 and verse 31. Perhaps some of you might be persuaded, listen, I'm going to come to God however I want. He's going to accept me just as I am. This is what many modern people think, but consider the Word of God. Chapter 15 and verse 31, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. God says, you try to come to me any way you want, you will die that way. I will not dwell in defilement. And in case you think, well, that's Old Covenant, I would encourage you to consider Revelation chapter 21. And the Bible tells of a day which there is no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. There, there they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. God will fellowship only with those who are undefiled, those who are clean. Which raises the question, doesn't it? How can one become clean? Well, we see not only the defilement in these chapters, we see that God cleanses. In fact, after each one of these issues of defilement, God explains this is how you pursue your cleansing. Right? God, God wants them to enjoy His presence. God wants to be with them. And so He tells them, okay, you do this in order to be clean. You do this in order to be clean. The, the most elaborate is the skin disease. And most of chapter 14 is devoted to how they can become clean if their skin disease leaves them. In fact, there are three rituals, um, all kind of concentric circles. It begins outside the camp. Then you move next to your house and you live outside your house, but you're in the camp. And then the third ritual is that you actually end up at the tabernacle and there you make offerings to the Lord. I love, I love what the ritual, we don't have time, our time is running out, but in, in chapter 14, the first ritual, the priest would come out and he would examine you, and if he saw no more skin disease on you, you would take two live birds and an earthenware uh, vessel filled with water. You would sacrifice one bird above the pot of water. The blood then would drip into that, that, that water, so you now have a a blood-water mix. I don't know if that reminds you of something. It reminds me of something that happened on Good Friday. But anyways, he would take then hyssop, scarlet cord, and cedar, 
and he would dip it in that and he would sprinkle you seven times with this mixture. And then he would take the live bird and dip it into the blood of the dead bird. And then he would let the live bird go free. And I don't know if that points you to anything. That one having the blood of another applied to them in order that they might live a life of freedom in, um, as they can go. And then he comes to home. He leaves outside home. The next day, uh, excuse me, seven days later, he, he washes himself. He shaves his body, even his eyebrows, it says. And then on the eighth day, he comes to the tabernacle. He offers a purification offering, uh, uh, a burnt offering, a grain offering in Thanksgiving, a guilt offering, right? He's bringing all these offerings. It takes eight days for this cleanliness. You know what else happens on eight days? Uh, a male child, eight days after he's born, is circumcised. And what God is picturing is that this man, who was once dead, if you will, for all um, purposes, is now born again. He's now alive. Could you imagine what that might have been like where you were exiled and now you're brought into the very presence of God, able to worship him and bring him offerings? You want to imagine what that be going on in your heart. You think you might have sung Psalm 30. Oh Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Right? God provides the cleansing. But of course, all these ceremonial cleansing points us to a far deeper cleansing in which the Lord Jesus provides. As we conclude our time this morning, God's word, I invite you to turn to the gospel of Luke. Um, we, I, I, I want to show you briefly how all these laws help us understand the work of Jesus. In fact, there are a number of passages that we could refer to, um, but I, I just wanted to show you two in Luke's Gospel, and then we'll be done. In chapter 5 of Luke's Gospel, that's on page 861 in your pew Bible, we read in verse 12, When he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and he saw Jesus. He fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, we who now love the book of Leviticus, right? we say to Jesus, no, don't touch him. Right? You will be defiled. And Jesus reaches out and touches him, and he is not defiled. The clean touch the unclean, and the unclean is cleansed. Right? Jesus' cleanliness is contagious. He says, I will be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. Now look what he says in verse 14. And he charged him to tell no one but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. That's Leviticus 14. Turn over to Luke 8. Let me show you one other. Luke 8 is a wonderful story. You know this story. Jesus on his way to heal a 12-year-old girl who's dying. There's some urgency to get there in time, but he's interrupted in verse 43. And there was a woman 
who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physician, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood had ceased. Now we who love Leviticus know that she can't be there, that this woman is highly contagious, and that she should be shut off from society, quarantined, sent outside, And she can't come, certainly can't come and touch someone. But look what happened. It says in verse 44, and uh, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now look in verse 45. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Who has just come up and reached out to me? He wants to know, verse 47, And when the woman saw she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Right? We, we know, because we know Leviticus, why she's hiding, why she's trembling, why she's falling down at his feet. She's not allowed to be there. That's against the law of God. She's contagious and everything she touches is unclean. She makes everything unclean unless she touches Jesus. And he makes her clean. Look what he says in verse 48. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I'm telling you, a new day has arrived when Jesus walked upon this earth. That the shadow of the law fades in the brilliance of our Savior. And He has come to clean the unclean. And not just lepers. And not just the sick. The prostitutes and the tax collectors. The Gentiles and sinners like you and like me. He has come to clean. The old said, keep away. You are unclean. Jesus shows up and says, draw near. Not because your uncleanness no longer matters. Draw near because I have come to make you clean. So I ask you this morning, what can wash away our sin? What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He say it with me, Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The Lord has said, My blood will cleanse you from your defilement. My blood will cleanse you from your unfitness to draw near to God Himself. First John 1, 7, The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Is this not what he taught in the upper room on the eve of his crucifixion when he rose up and he went from apostle to apostle to wash them? And Peter says, no, my Lord, you can't wash me. It's too demeaning for you. And Jesus says to him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If I do not make you clean, you are not fit to be in my presence. You are not fit to draw near to God. It's only through the work of Christ can we be near to the Lord. And so I wonder this morning if some of you are unclean in your sin. Reach out and lay hold of Jesus by faith.
and he will make you clean. He lived a perfect life. He alone, he alone is pure. He alone is undefiled. Jesus alone is the only one who is fit to be with God. And he goes to the cross there, and he dies on the cross. And what does he call from the cross? What does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what's happening? He's banished. He has been sent out of the camp. He has been cast away from the presence of God. He alone who is pure has been exiled from God in order that you and I might come in. And he offers that to everyone. You can come into the presence of God, not because you are fit, but because I am. And I have been sent out so that you might be brought in if you would simply surrender your life to Christ as your Lord and God, believing he died for your sin and rose from the grave. The Bible says that you will be made righteous, declared righteous by God. My Christian brothers and sisters, as we end our time this morning, In light of these truths, in light of what Jesus has done, how is it that we so easily return to the defilement of our sin? How how is it that we so quickly jump into the sty of wickedness and rebellion? And maybe even this morning, you would be willing to bring your defilement to Christ that He might once again wash you clean. That you would tell Him, Lord, I covet. I'm not content with the life You've given me. I'm constantly grasping for more. I want more. I want more. I want more. And it is defiling. Cleanse me. Maybe you'd say to Him this morning, Lord, I'm bitter. can't forgive. And it is defiling me. Cleanse me. Maybe you would say to him, Lord, I'm a hypocrite. I act one way in church and I'm totally different at home. I'm full of arrogance. I lie. I lust. And it is defiling me. It is defiling those around me. It is defiling your creation. Will you cleanse me? You know, the Bible says, you know, First John 1, 9, don't you? If you confess, right, your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and what? Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. My brothers and sisters, whatever you have done, please understand there is one who stoops down to touch the defiled that we might be, be made right before God. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. Help us to understand who you are from the book of Leviticus. Your word to us. Help us to understand who we are. And forgive us for our defilement. Even now as we just pause for a moment and your people, perhaps some here might confess their sin to you silently in their heart. Father, will you forgive us 
when we think the difference between you and us is small. Forgive us when when we think you should accept us just as we are. Help us to see your holiness. Help us to see your love. Help us to see your mercy and grace even as we study as a church through the book of Leviticus. Help us to see the beauty and the love of Jesus that we might become more like Him. Make us a holy people for You, our God, are holy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.